There's nothing like a coach. A coach is someone who pushes you past your limits, helps you reach your potential. A coach is someone who can see something inside of you that you haven't quite seen yet. And I had some great coaches. My high school football coach, he was a legend. By the time I got to him, he was already 70 years old in the Texas Football Hall of Fame. Godly man, Christian man, impacted my life in ways that I could, I could just spend the rest of this message telling you how Coach O impacted my life. Then I went to college, and before you think that's impressive, it's a very, very small college. So small, I had to buy my own shoes to play, so it wasn't that big of a deal. But we had a 28-year-old coach, uh, not much older than me. I thought he was. Godly man, young family, and he's been a mentor to me, continues to be a mentor to me, and the impact of a coach is so strong. So way to go, those of you who are coaching, whether it's Little League or whether it's mentoring someone or tutoring them academically. Coaches come in all types of forms. It's not just limited to sports. And in recent years, the term life coach has emerged. The idea that someone can coach you not just on athletic success and athletic ability, but coach you in behavior. And this is more than just a term we've learned. It's actually a system that you have to get certified to be a life coach, an official life coach. And what you do as a life coach is you help identify goals, objectives, and then you give accountability to reach those goals. No different than a tennis coach or a golf coach or an academic tutor. The idea of in our behavior, in our life objectives, we're going to have an outside source come and help us. And so that's a new kind of field of behavioral science, if you want to put it that way. But as always, though that's helpful and good to have current and contemporary expressions of mentorship, ancient wisdom is the most reliable wisdom. Stuff that's been around a long time is stuff we can really trust. And I just want to suggest to you that the Bible is the greatest life coach you could possibly have. Not to say the others are wrong or bad, but there is nothing is reliable, nothing is dependable, nothing that has been tested, nothing that has been verified, nothing that has been used throughout the centuries like the scripture. The Bible is so rich. And I know this crowd, most of you really love the Bible. You love the Bible. Most of us read the Bible through a filter of what interests us. So if we're very interested in the end times, almost every scripture is through the filter of the end times. Or if we're very interested in salvation and the security of the believer, everything's through that filter. Or if we're very interested in the Holy Spirit's power, Everything's through that filter, and all of those are valid concerns and things we need to study. But sometimes we overlook the most simple truth about the Bible, and here's the truth, especially about the New Testament. Here's the truth. The New Testament is primarily about relationships. You know, there's lots of different things that may interest you, prophecy or eschatology or pneumatology, or theology. But 
the New Testament, the writings of Paul especially, are extremely practical. And here's why that's important. Because I want you to remember the statement. If you get your relationships right, you're going to get your life right. We don't look back on people's lives and, and say, wow, if they just, they just would have taken that financial opportunity, their life would have been different. Most of the time, we don't say that. We don't look back and say, if they would have made that career choice or if they would have participated in that sport longer, we typically look back and evaluate people's lives based off the depth of relationships that they have. If you get your relationships right, you're going to get your life right. Relationships are the key to so much in your life. And that's why through the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit who is breathed upon these scriptures we read, the Holy Spirit who came upon Paul and Peter and John and the 40 different authors of the scripture, he breathed upon that scripture and he, he caused those words to become life to us today. And Many, the majority of those words have to do with how you and I relate to one another, how we relate to our spouses, our children, the different types of relationships that affect our life. So for the next few weeks during these, this fall season, we're going to look at a particular passage in scripture that is so rich in directives. Um, when you're reading scripture, a lot of times we read scripture for volume, so we're on a Bible reading plan. That's good. I, I give out Bible reading plans. I believe in them. But there's those mornings or evenings where it comes about accomplishment. It becomes accomplishment. Let's read these two chapters. Let's catch up. Let's get the volume of reading material over with. And sometimes we can forget the power of phrases and the power of statements. And Romans chapter 12, starting with verse 9 has these incredible directives, then we're going to look at different ones of them, but let's just read the whole passage together. Starting with verse 9, Romans 12, 9. This is the theme scripture of our series these next several weeks. Reading out of the Holman Christian Bible translation, it says this, Love must be without hypocrisy. Detest evil. Cling to what is good. Show family affection to one another with brotherly love. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not lack diligence. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in affliction. Be persistent in prayer. Is that not a rich text? I mean, there is so much that is being said right there. But today we're going to look at verse 9. In this particular phrase, verse 9 says this, love must be without hypocrisy. That's our theme today. Love must be without hypocrisy. That's kind of translating that in the negative. The ESV translates it more in the positive. It says it this way. Love, let love be genuine. The same message here. Not fake, not phony, but genuine. The real stuff, the stuff that really matters in life. And I want you to understand something. That when you understand this concept, genuine, authentic love, love without hypocrisy, 
There is a power in your life that will come when you understand this concept. At first glance, you, you may mistakenly think, well, this isn't, you know, this isn't a deep sermon or this isn't a complicated sermon. We're not going, Aaron's not going to grab some obscure scripture in the Old Testament that I don't remember reading and analyze that. This is for baby Christians. Nonsense. Nonsense. The challenge to love authentically, the challenge to love genuinely, the challenge to love without hypocrisy is a daily battle for every single Christian, especially me. We have to love authentically, love genuinely, love without hypocrisy. The phrase, I love you, is very curious. It's very strange because it's used so many different ways. We use the term, I love you, sometimes very carelessly. Sometimes we use the term, I love you, but we don't use it when we should. Some great philosophers, collectively known as the Snow Patrol, said in a song a few weeks, a few years ago, they said those three words, I forgot what the phrase is now. <laughs> Maybe I shouldn't have used that illustration. Now it won't even be that powerful when I say it though. It says those three words are said too much, but never enough. And I, that, that phrase really stuck with me because sometimes I'll meet people, people who are kind of like golden retrievers, you know? They're just in love with the whole world. I mean, their tongues are wagging and they're ready to lick your face and say hello. And they're like, and they're real careless with those words. They're like, hey man, I love you. I love you, dude. I'm like, thanks. I don't really know your last name, but I guess I love you too. And that can feel, I don't know, a little empty. I'm not judging the motives of those who do that. But to say I love you means something. And as Christians, we're, we're, we're supposed to love the whole world. So I'm not even questioning people who are that way. Maybe they're just better at that than I am. But there's been social situations where someone says, I love you. And I want to say I love you back. But usually I reserve that to people that I've been through some adversity with or people who I know better. So that's one contrast. But then the other contrast is working with middle-aged adults who are in their 40s and 50s, maybe even their 60s, who come to a time, a time of, of crisis, of passing of their adult parents, and they've never heard a father or never heard a mother or heard it very rarely, the words, I love you. And that seems equally maybe even more empty because I do think the people we love, we need to tell them that on a regular basis. So here are some observations about love that I want us to journey through in the next few minutes. Here's the first one is I want to remind you to love with agape love. Love with agape love. This is something I'm going to guess most of you have heard about, but all of us need to be reminded about. The word love in the Greek is actually has several different meanings. When we read the word love in the Bible, we don't understand the depth of what that means. One of the Greek words is the word agape. 
And we'll talk about what agape is in just a couple of minutes. But before we do, I want to share with you what some of the other Greek words used for love are and how we often confuse them. The first one is the word eros. You'll figure out what this means really quick if you think about the word erotic. Because this word is talking about sexual love. Gratifying sexual desires, gratifying an appetite. So the idea is, you know, at 12 o'clock, most of us will be hungry. And we have an appetite and we want to go satisfy that appetite. Eros is very much like that in the realm of sensuality. And within that, and I want you to catch this, there's the idea of to ask or to beg or to demand. The idea is I have a need and I need that desire to be satisfied. And this is really how we incorrectly define romance in our society. Because when our needs aren't being met in any area, emotionally or financially, we think we can check out. We think we can abandon our covenant relationship. We think that's an excuse. And if all you have is eros, love that demands, love that begs, love that says, I need to get this because my needs aren't being met, if that's all you have, then eros is very much conditional, depending on the mood, depending on the circumstance, depending on what's going on. Now, here's the interesting thing about the word eros. Do you know that in the New Testament, that word is never used? It's never used. Even when it's talking about sexual intimacy between married couples, the word eros is not used. Because by and large, it's a selfish type of love. Now, here's another word, the word phileo. This will probably be an easy word for you to remember. The most basic way to define the word phileo is friendship. It's the idea that two individuals are drawn together by common interest, by compatibility. Two individuals are drawn together because they like the same thing or they're drawn together by compatible personalities or there's often social situations where there's just two people there and so you have to be friends by, by nature of your proximity. So phileos developed a friendship and the Bible does talk about that. that. That word is used in the Bible and friendship is really important. But the word that I've suggested to you is the word agape. There's not really a good way to translate this word. So we've often translated it as unconditional love. The truth is Greek scholars, which I am far from being a Greek scholar. In fact, Pastor Matt, I discovered, has taken more Greek than I have in my academic career. So Matt, if you can start mentoring me on Greek words, I'd appreciate that. But I did read translate, translators, trans, uh, excuse me, commentaries, and there's the truth. This particular word for centuries Greek translators, who that's, what, that's the language the New Testament was written in, have debated on how to describe the word agape. Because the word itself is attached with so much emotion. It's one of those words you can't really describe 
because it has so much emotion attached to it. But the idea is this, is that if somebody gives, somebody loves and cares for another person so much that they'll give their life for them. That's why a very famous scripture in our faith is not going to be on the screen, but you've probably heard it as John 3, 16. For God so loved the world. It's for God so agape the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him will not perish, but will have eternal life. God gave. Do you see the contrast between agape, which gives, and eros, which demands? Eros says, satisfy me, satisfy my needs. Make sure my needs are met. Agape says, I care about you. I love you so much. I'm going to give everything for you. For God so agape the world that he gave his only son. Galatians 5.22, it's not on the screen, it's not on your notes, but write it down. It lists the fruits of the Holy Spirit, saying if the Holy Spirit's in your life, these are the fruits, these are the things that will show up. And one of those words is the word love, which is the word agape. When the Holy Spirit gets control of you, there is an unconditional, an emotional, self-giving, almost indescribable kind of love you have for God and other people. This is why we need to continue to look at this because we're all learning more about this. I love the scripture, 1 John chapter 4, verse 8. And we can read this together. 1 John 4, 8 says, says it this way. Dear friends, let us love, which is agape, one another because love is from God and everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Friends, come on, let us give to one another. Let's have a divine love for one another. Why? Because agape is from God. Love is from God. And everyone who loves has been born of God. I heard a story a few years ago from another minister. This took place in his congregation. There was a girl in his congregation who needed a bone marrow transplant. And it was a serious operation, but it had limited risk. It was an operation that there was expectation of survival. They needed to find a match. And it so happened that the girl's little brother was a match. And so they went to the little brother. And they asked him if he would be willing to do this. And he thought about it for a couple of days. And after a couple of days, he came back and said, yeah, I'll do the surgery. So the day came for the surgery to happen. And they prepped the young boy for surgery. And as they were waiting in those quiet moments before surgery, when there's a bit of anxiety and a bit, a bit of fear, the young boy calmly asked his mom, so how long before I die? In the translation of the request, the little boy didn't realize that there was limited risk for the surgery. He thought by giving his bone marrow, his life would be extinguished and his sister's life would continue. That, my friends, is an example of agape love. I'm gonna lay it all down 
for somebody else. That's why here's the second thing I want you to observe. Let's love with action. Let's love with action. This is why to say the words, I love you, without any action behind it is so, so empty. It's so cheap. It's so easy. Believe me, I think we should say I love you. I say I love you to my family every day. Every day I think it's appropriate. I think it's good. I think it creates a, a bond. We bond over that sound and hearing that. But those aren't just empty words. Those words have responsibility. Those words have a challenge. Those words are meant to be followed up with action. So I first John Continuing in chapter 3 and verse 17 says it this way. 1 John 3, 17. Little children, we must not love in word or speech, but in truth and action. We must not agape just in word or speech, but in truth and action. The idea that we can say, yeah, I love you, I love you, but then maliciously gossip behind someone's back. I know gossip, there's times we innocently gossip perhaps or we're careless with our words, but to maliciously gossip or to, to try to defame somebody or to try to take someone's secrets and to twist them and use our words to slander them. How in the world can we say we love somebody and then not let our actions and behavior match that. The Bible is very clear. I mean, it's a mirror to us today saying, guys, look, you can't say those words if you don't back it up with activity. You can't say those words if you don't back it up with loyalty. You can't say those words if you don't back it up with action. That's what agape love is, is love and action. Why is it that we have the ability to say I love you to somebody's face, but to act differently behind their back. The reason we have that ability is because we wear masks. We wear masks. In fact, that's what the word hypocrisy comes from. It comes from, it's really a word related to the theater life. When someone would put on a mask whenever they changed scenes. Now, this is, we're coming close to October 31st, which is Reformation Day, but here in America, they celebrate Halloween too. Halloween has now become an adult activity. It's no longer a kid. I don't think our kids care so much about dressing up, but adults, you guys sure like to dress up on Halloween. And there's something about, there's something empowering. There's something about putting a mask on it makes us feel like we're a different person. You, you put a mask on someone and their personality changes. Put a mask on someone and they can, they can pretend to be someone else and they can act like someone else. A few years ago, my two boys had their Halloween costume on. And this was no joke and this was no game. Because when these guys put these masks on, and I wish, this makes me want to get a better projector, so I'll try to post this on Facebook. Uh, I had this as my profile bar. And if you could see those eyes, I know you can't see it in the dark. That is not Luke and Lincoln Allison. That is Captain America and the Incredible Hulk. When those masks came on, 
those boys change and you can see it in their eyes. It's one of my favorite pictures. I will keep that picture for all time. There's an intensity in their eyes because when the mask comes on, their personality is completely transformed. And that's what we falsely believe we can do. We can act like we love somebody when it's convenient. We can act like we can love someone when it's advantageous. We can act like we love someone when it gives us an inside influence into their life. But without action, it's hypocrisy. Here's the last thing. It goes back to our theme today. Love without hypocrisy. Love without hypocrisy. And I just want to challenge challenge you guys. Don't wear a mask. That's what hypocrites do. When they change scenes, hypocrites put on a mask. And they're one way with one group of people and one way with another group. Our hypocrites will be one way with you around certain people, but they'll act completely different around others. And the scripture's very clear. Let love, let agape be genuine. Let agape be without hypocrisy. Let love, let agape be authentic and real. So I love this closing scripture, 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 5. This, this scripture says so much. In the middle of his instruction of godly living, says this, now the goal of our instruction is love. The goal of our instruction is agape that comes from a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. Yeah, that's, that's not hypocrisy there, is it, guys? They look at those descriptions, descriptions again. A pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. Love without hypocrisy. Hey, let the scripture be your life coach. And this week, if you could take that phrase out of Romans 12, 9, love without hypocrisy, meditate on it, pray about it, think about it, apply it to your life. Your life will improve. Those around you will improve. That's the power of Jesus. That's the power of the gospel. Now, like any time, when... When we read the scripture and we understand its truth, we automatically begin to have some regrets, begin to think about, yeah, that time I was fake and that time I did, I did change roles and I was hypocritical. Can I let you know that there is forgiveness for you? There's nobody in this room who has not at one time in their life been guilty. Has, there's no one in this room who has not been guilty of hypocrisy. There's no one in this room who at one point or the other has not been disgenuine in their love. That's why we need Jesus. That's why we need his touch, his transformation. That's why we need to connect with Jesus. That's why we need to let Jesus be the center of our lives and our attention and who we are. For he came as an example. He is love. He is agape. Everything he does and says and is has been agape love to us, has been love demonstrated to us, love in action, love in authenticity, love that serves, love that gives. And nothing reminds us of that more than the cross. The cross was not the end, it was the beginning. 
at the cross, Jesus gave it all. And then the story didn't end at the cross. On the third day, Jesus rose from the dead and he rose from the dead, proving he was God. And he promised to come again. And our Jesus is coming again. He's coming again to this planet, to this earth. Jesus is coming to rule and reign his people. And we today get to declare that. The fact that you came to church today, you proclaim what real love is. The fact that you participated in listening to this message, you're proclaiming what true love is. And now we have as a chance, as a body, as a family, to take the bread and the cup. I want to ask our ushers to prepare to hand out communion.